Hello and welcome to Life of the School, episode 75. My name is Aaron Matthew, and I'm a biology teacher from Acton-Boxborough Regional High School in Acton, Massachusetts. Each episode of Life at the School, I like to sit down with a fellow life science teacher and ask them how they get in the classroom, what are they currently working on, and what are their hopes for the future. This episode, I sit down with Mary Jo Rainier. Mary Jo is a biology teacher at East Longmeadow High School in East Longmeadow, Massachusetts. She currently teaches biology and AP biology, but she has done a wide range of science courses throughout her career. Mary Jo has also taught as an adjunct professor at the Elms College and at Bay Path University. In 2015, Mary Jo was the recipient of the Harold Grinspoon Foundation Excellence in Teaching Award, and in 2018, she received an ABE Teacher Recognition Award. You can follow Mary Jo on Twitter at MJ Rainier. Welcome, Mary Jo. Thanks, Aaron, for having me on. Great. It's nice to hear you again. We were just together just a couple of days ago uh, in at Harvard at the Harvard Life Science Outreach. That was great. Right. It was. I think that was one of the best ones. That was so interesting being able to go to Amgen and visit. Yeah. Yeah. We got to go over and um, navigate. I don't. I don't know how they managed to get. I, there was a huge group of us. There was like had to be more than thirty of us that they navigated from Harvard. Yeah, between all the way down thirty to and forty. Yeah, and they Harvard they got us down there and then got us into Amgen and that's having it's kind of like a, a grown up field trip um, <laughs> that they ran us through exactly. Yeah, and then they took us around and showed us a bunch of stuff at Amgen and fed us lunch and had us meet with some workers there. That was a really kind of cool experience. Yeah, and we've done that. Uh, we were say, I was thinking like last summer, you, like you couldn't get away from me. Um, <laughs> I know. <laughs> right, we went from the read to doing working for Lab Exchange. Yeah, and well, we we did the AB. I think we also did the same like Amgen like refresh refresher one day together last year as well. So like it was oh, we spent yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah we spent more than three weeks together last <laughs> summer. <laughs> but like, uh, but yeah, it was it was good. It was uh, and it sounds like you're you're now off. You're not coming back into Cambridge for the rest of the summer. I am not. I decided not to do that this year. I have a trip planned, a road trip out to South Dakota. Mm. So just kind of doing some other stuff and. And not really doing that. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I think it's good because I, I was telling Alia, um, who's our point person at, at the Amgen Biotech Experience, that I actually dialed back a lot. I have one week that I had committed to back in, gosh, it was like January or February, I committed to go down to Yukon. And then I'm going to do a couple of the weeks with Lab Exchange. But for me, like, I sometimes get overloaded by things over the summer. And I was very conscious to start saying no to, like, new opportunities would come up. And I was like, nope, I'm full. I'm <laughs> Every week's, I, not, week's not booked, but I don't want to book every week. Right. I think that's really important. I think that's how I felt last summer. Yeah. So I wanted, I wanted to have a change from that, but be able to also focus on the new curriculum changes for AP as well. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, uh, that's been really where my, my mindset's been for the last couple of weeks as well. So uh, I'm super excited to look, to talk about AP and also to Amgen and maybe lab exchange as well. But I do want to get into the question I like to ask everybody because um, it's, as we said, we, we see each other all the time, but I don't know the answer to this question, uh, which is how did you become a science teacher? What, what led you into a science classroom? Oh, great, great question. Um, 
back in college, I was definitely the pre-med route and mm-hmm. always sort of having my father sort of on my shoulder saying, you know, when you graduate, you need to make sure that you have a job. Um, <laughs> definitely always was interested in sciences and, and certainly biology. Um, and my junior year, the opportunity to be able to student teach and get certified in the state of New York came up and a bunch of my friends sort of and I jumped on that and I had an absolutely wonderful experience. Um, I had a great teacher that I worked with. It was a very rural upstate New York um, setting for the public school and it was just like, hey, this is pretty cool. This is neat. I could actually see myself doing that. And from that point, we also had a January term at -hmm. the college that I went to. And I did that at Trinity Pauling School in New York, um, all boys, which was a very different sort of situation, but also very good as far as like, hey, I think I could do this. I think this would be something that I would be good at. Um, Not necessarily the best experience with one of the teachers that I worked with, but that was not off-putting enough. (laughs) Um, and from there, uh, it just sort of turns out when I took my first teaching job, also at a private school at Miss Hall's in Pittsfield, Mass, I ended up taking the place of one of my lab TAs who was going off to medical school. So she could actually recommend me to the headmaster. So that's sort of how I kind of fell into it, but also sort of was something that kind of took a hold of me too. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, was that just a, a pretty, and we're talking about a different time um, because, you know, I got my certification quite a long time ago and I know that the um, hurdles to certification are much higher now <laughs> uh, both right. in New York and in right. Massachusetts mm-hmm. than they were back then. But was that like a pretty common thing that they would do is they'd come around to the biology teachers and say, Hey, why don't you go student teacher? We're, I mean, it sounds like. No, you were probably it was the first time. Start. Mm-hmm. You, it was really the first time they were starting that program. Oh, so there was a, like, yeah. but there was an outreach that they were like looking to try and get some people to say, "Hey, right. why don't you consider exactly. student teaching?" Mm-hmm. So, were there like, academic classes that went to support that, or was it like literally just yeah, yes. bio yeah? So, um, yeah, I did that, and then I took up, you know, the education courses that I needed to mm-hmm. to do that as well to be able to graduate, and then. Um, I did take a test to become certified in New York State, but that certainly changed when I started teaching in Massachusetts. But actually, because I was in the private school, I didn't need that. Yeah. And then you did go on to get uh, your MED at, at UMass, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I think you, you beat me uh, by, I think I looked at your, your resume. I was like two years you beat me. Um, so I think you finished at nine, in 95 and I finished in 97. Okay. Um, well, I think that, well, I was at Miss Hall's for four years and then uh, I took a year. Well, actually then from there I went and I taught in Greece for a year. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah. I saw something about the fact okay. that you had been in Greece, but I don't know the, the background on that. So you taught in private school for a few years and then decided to teach, teach abroad. private school. In Greece, right, just outside of Athens in Kafisia. Um, And again, that was, like, again, connections. Someone that you would know, like, from high school that um, I ran into during the summer. And she said, oh, we need another person in the dorm. And this was a very small dorm of about 25 kids from all over the world. And I said, okay, that sounds great, even though it's kind of what I was doing. And I was looking to maybe try something else. 
but it was a great year. Um, and that was in 91. And I remember heading off to Athens, not really knowing where I was going with a suitcase of dirty clothes because hurricane Bob had just come, come through <laughs> and, you know, we had no electricity where, um, cause I was on the vineyard at the time. So. Yeah. So like you're, you're, you're doing, I mean, you said you wanted to do something different. I think going to Greece to do the thing you were doing is definitely something different. (laughs) So after you, you go to Greece, you come back to Massachusetts and And or did you go somewhere else? No, I came back to Massachusetts. Um, sort of took a year, took the GREs, um, in the idea that I would go to graduate school. Um, and at that point really feeling that I did want to teach and now I needed to become certified in Massachusetts. And that's how I ended up at UMass at Amherst. Mm-hmm. Um, and student taught at East Long Meadow and I've kind of been there ever since. <laughs> and I just finished my 25th year there. Wow. Yeah. I, I, and I, I had visions when I saw that you went to UMass, I had visions of being at, you know, that little elementary school with the grad classes tacked on to the back end. and Oh, right. Mark Meadows. <laughs> at Mark Meadows, yeah. Mark Meadows Elementary. Um, I, I don't even think that building's there anymore um, with all the buildings. I think buildings you're right. I don't think it is. Well, uh, I didn't realize that you had gone through there, yeah. too. Okay. Yeah. I mean, my path was was a little, uh, was equally stumbly, but yeah, I, I kind of, I had applied to get my master's uh, while I was an undergrad at UMass in biology. And I applied to get my master's, but I wasn't sh- sure that I wanted to do it. And I had a, a, a program that allowed me to go in and tutor students um, at the high school in Amherst mm-hmm. okay. while, I was a, while I was a junior. And uh, I, I thought it was great. I, I would go in and I would meet with people and I would meet with kids and I would work with them. And I loved it. And I thought it was like, they're, it was great. And I would go back to the class that was all about this tutoring experience. And the other people in my group who all went to the same school would go and they'd be like, yeah, I can't connect with the kids and I can't like <laughs> nobody talks to me and da 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 da. And I was like, why is this so different? And um, it was definitely one of those things where I somehow I don't know why I knew how to connect to the kids. Like, period. Like I just did. Yeah, um, I think that's something that it's just intuitive. I mean, it's really hard to teach that. Yeah. When you're thinking about like your education classes and even I mean you just have to be yourself too even if you're a little nerdy or or whatever um because the kids pick up on that if you're trying to be somebody you're not yeah I also think there's something about like the fit of the school and sort of you said yourself and then on authenticity I think that had I gone into a different school maybe I wouldn't have connected with those kids as well but I was able to connect with the kids in the school I was going into mm-hmm. and there was a match between what those kids needed and my personality. And it, it, there definitely was a good fit because I have taught in a variety of schools and I haven't always felt like what I had to say and what I, <laughs> my authentic self was a great fit for what those kids needed um, or as good a fit, I should say, um, as opposed to, you know, where I teach now, where I feel like, I talk to my kids and even though I'm not, you know, a 20 something and haven't been for a long time, um, I can speak to them in a way that I can connect very right. easily mm-hmm. um, and get to where they are. So, yeah, it's uh, it's good. And I know East Long Meadow. I feel like um, the East Long Meadow makes me think of playing soccer back in the late 80s, early 90s, because I'm a Western Mass kid. Okay. <laughs> and going down and 
playing soccer against all the schools around Springfield. <laughs> so yeah, it's a, uh, I'm, I'm definitely a Pioneer Valley kid. So, uh, okay. I you, didn't know that. You know, yeah. My neck of the woods out there. Okay. Uh, so, um, all right. Well, so last summer we sort of alluded to this in the introduction that like we go out to the read, um, and you're not allowed to say I wasn't on an acorn cause I was absolutely an acorn. Uh, <laughs> Which I but, also uh, was. Yes, we were both, you know, very experienced teachers experiencing our first read back in 2018. And so for those who have never done the AP read, uh, when you are a first year reader, they put a little acorn on your uh, name tag to signify to everyone that you are a first year teacher <laughs> there. Um, and first then, year reader. <laughs> first year reader. Yeah, first year reader, better stated. Um but then we both went back. So we both applied to go back into a second year. So obviously it wasn't a, a terrible experience for you uh, because you wanted to go back and do it a second time. Right. So, right. So how do you think the read impacted your teaching last year? Um, and maybe like what kind of takeaways have you taken from the last couple of years of doing this? Oh, I think it had a huge impact. Um, I know that a lot of people say it's one of, it's like, Part of the best professional development that you can do, and I totally agree with that. It um, really made me think about how I get my students to respond to the prompt and how I get mm. them to write. Um, I've always felt that that's been an area of weakness for me. I have kids that come to me that are pretty good writers, but they're really good at just sort of restating the prompt and writing a lot and maybe writing off topic, but mm -hmm. really getting them to focus on what the question is asking them and getting to the point. I sort of say, get in and get out. Mm -hmm. And I think that that, and I can, I could totally see it from the beginning, how I approached teaching it, just really starting even within the first week, getting them to try answering some AP style open response questions. Do you think you were bringing in more of those style questions right away, having done that experience last year? Right, where I think I might have waited until we had perhaps like gone through more content, because sometimes mm -hmm. it's hard. But I'm like, oh, well, we can do part A and B and just cut off C until we're ready for it. Or we can show them what, it, what that looks like. But yes, we're not ready to answer that yet. But just, I think also the importance of just really justifying their answer and what that means. So I think that that had a huge impact on the writing. So, I mean, I know a common sort of thread um, talking to teachers about how their students felt about the open response questions that they felt that they were easy. My students felt really comfortable with them this year. And I don't think that's always been the case. So I know mm. for me as an AP bio teacher, and I've taught AP bio for 12 years, that I was getting to the point where I felt like my scores were kind of stuck. Um, and I know this past year I had a very atypical group, really high-powered group, um, but it definitely get, got me over that hurdle. Yeah, I, it's it's funny as you were talking about that. I, I've had a, I felt like I had an atypical group this year. Um, and again, I had some very strong students, and I teach at a school where I kind of always have a ton of strong students. Um, but I had a... I've had a larger, I had a larger population of students who didn't take our honors bio, honors chem, and like really kind of like crush those courses before uh -huh. they walked in the door. Um, and I do think that what you're talking about, the 
the academic skill of translating a question in deciphering it and figuring out what the prompt is asking is a some, is something that that's one of the reasons why these are students who may not have done quite as well in an honors bio or an honors chemistry class because it just takes them a little bit longer to decode and maybe that processing time that they they used will end up you know costing them time on the exam and then they rush through parts and then they don't quite get through as much or uh, maybe studying or doing homework or that sort of stuff takes them so much longer that they don't quite get quite as far um, I don't know what it all, how it all adds up <laughs> to get there, but I felt like I was on the other end. And at the same time, what you said about students feeling comfortable, my students came back and they weren't telling me, oh, it took me so long to answer all the open response questions. I felt like this year I was able to get them to see how to get to the prompt a lot better. Right. I mean, I still certainly had those students that felt rushed at the end, but they knew. I mean, they, I think they were much better prepared overall. Mm for just timing themselves and, you know, not just getting stuck on question one and two before moving on, just going through and reading through all the questions and just saying, okay, well, I can jump in here and I can come back and add and, you know, really avoiding the extra sort of verbiage that they can tend to add to their, their essays. Yeah. And I was actually talking to, um, we have a, we, we were sitting with a, a teacher who's going to be new to teaching AP, um, and uh, she's somebody who I started working with last year through the um, the AP mentoring group. And I introduced her to the ABE program and she came in and she was doing that. And I, we, I was talking to her a lot yesterday about, yes, those power verbs, those verbs of identify versus justify versus define, like spend time on those. Exactly. <laughs> spend the, spend mm -hmm. time on those with your kids. Um, so I, so did you that was one of the things that I noticed this year when I was going to I don't know if you had a chance to go to any of the nights where they were talking about the the new CED or they were talking about the new exam I don't know if you got to go to one or both I think I saw you at one of them so yeah the second one I was yeah. at the Royals game on the first time the first oh, night yeah <laughs> yeah and so uh, what were what were your takeaways from the kinds of things that they were saying or have you I mean I've barely started to process it so I would I, I wouldn't take it the wrong way if you were like uh it's gonna be different and that's enough so <laughs> right it's gonna be different um I haven't really closely sort of dissected that but as far as I mean certainly the questions are sort of asking them to do a little bit more in order mm -hmm. to earn the points it's sort of like you have to have this point or have this part of your answer as well as the justification in order to earn the whole point where sometimes that's not or hasn't always been the case I think yeah um, I don't know what you feel about that but um as far as because I was trying to, to explain it to someone else the next day and they're like well they already get a point for that and like well then I'm not explaining it correctly mm. so it's just their, their answers have to be a little bit um more in depth and definitely use the data that they're given to justify their answer. Yeah, I think that for me, the most important thing, and it, it builds into what you're describing, um, to me, the, the way the questions are formatted seems arbitrary year to year, at least coming in. And now there is a formula right. for what practices mm -hmm. and what kind of prompts they're going to ask for the questions. And on some, on some levels, I think that's going to be, 
I think it's going to be interesting because I think it comes across like it's going to be very formulaic and like a teach the test kind of thing. But I don't think it is because what it is, is it's these are the types of skills you're going to need on prompt one. And these are the types of skills you'll need on prompt two. And as you said, the short FRQs are going to be they're longer than the old short short FRQs and they have specific targets and goals and they're linked to practices and they're linked to the the skills that the students have to explain. And so for me, I feel like the formatting of what a format of an AP style question is much less of a black box. It's much more clear. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I, agree. I and, totally agree with that. But as what would, the topic of that question would be, it's not going to follow yeah. a pattern. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be the part that's very variable. And so what it does is it provides you the opportunity to say, all right, I want to write a good AP style question. And I've got this experiment here. Well, what are the types of questions that ask about experiments? Oh, it's this type of short FRQ is supposed to be about the practices that are about, you know, experimental design. So how can I take this experiment here and what would be the components that I would show the students and what would be the kinds of, you know, power words that I would use, those power verbs that I would use to elicit the types of responses from a student to help them understand that. Um, I've been playing around with writing some sample questions. And for me, like, it's never been easier to write a sample question. Not that it's easy to do, but it's way easier now than it was in previous years. Right, and I appreciate you sharing some of that with me, and I look forward yeah. to that coming out. Um, <laughs> I think you said in the fall, perhaps, that yes. that might be out. Okay. Yeah. Well, I'll, yeah, I'll always share all my stuff, but like I've got like nine drafts of about <laughs> 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 nine drafted things that have questions in them. But yeah, I, I stole from, um, I had always said I stole from Brittany Franskoviak. She had written formative assessment questions that she used with her students based off of the essential knowledge level statements um, that she gave her kids. And so I would sometimes write using essential knowledge statements from the old um, course design, and I would use those to write questions, but it was, they weren't, they weren't necessarily quite as good. I would say, oh, these are like practice short FRQs, but I don't, I didn't have a lot of confidence in that. I was like, that was the goal, but I didn't know how closely aligned they were. Mm-hmm. But now, like when I was talking to people, I can say, here is this, and I've modeled it after FRQ 5 or FRQ 4. Because if you go to the new course and exam description um, between pages 200 and 207, not that I don't spend those documents. <laughs> I, li- I literally shared that in an email just the other day, which is why those numbers are <laughs> at the, because somebody asked me where they were. And so I, I dug in and I wrote them down. But um, between 200 and 207 in the new CED, they actually describe the new test. And there are descriptions for what the components are going to be of the different um, the different questions. And they specifically talk about like, um, you know, what the part A, B, C, and D of the prompt are going to ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I've been I've been playing around with that and trying to model some questions after that. And as I said, I don't want to say that it's easy, but I think it's one of those things where uh, I feel like I'm definitely modeling it after something. And after I've written, you know, 50 or 60 of these, they'll, they will become easy. <laughs> so. Right. And I think that's one thing as an AP teacher that I've always struggled with is really giving students authentic practice um, Mm -hmm. where without giving them 
specific examples from previous tests. And I think, yeah. I think you're right. I think it's going to be easier to be able to do that. Um, I know we had talked about the, the new format and your class is set up very differently where I think, <laughs> I mean, the order of the topics, I don't necessarily, or I have not necessarily followed that same topic. Um, sequence that they've put out because I've always started with evolution and ended with evolution and kind of mm -hmm. like how that ties everything in. But I think it won't be as big of a change for me to be able to implement what they have. And I think, you know, also having taught AP bio for 12 years, <laughs> it's a, more of an easier change. Not that it won't be different and not that I'm not making changes, but I definitely feel like I'll have a better sort of handle on what I need to do. And it's more at this point, what do I need to cut out because there are so many resources that people are so willing to share. I think that's one of my bigger struggles. Yeah. And that's, I think that I went through a pretty significant and, you know, I, I teach with Brian and we went through a, uh, what we thought was this major cutting back of content back in 2012, you know, when the, the new, mm -hmm. and, and we did that, and like three or four years later, I looked at the curriculum, and I was like, oh, we didn't cut nearly enough. Uh, I thought we had cut enough, but we didn't. And so over the last couple of years, we've continued to to cut and provide open space for students to do, you know, labs and projects and really explore topics a little bit more, um, particularly in class, and, and really do the content um, in context of the science practices. That, that really sort of that discovery opening up kind of component. And I think that the nice thing about the new CED and reducing the number of, of sort of topics in a lot of ways does create the space for, for teachers to feel comfortable that they're getting all the coverage, although I don't really like that word. Uh, but if you feel comfortable covering everything, then you can provide the opportunity to practice. Um, right, or at least be able to give them the opportunity to be able to explore those topics. Yeah. And I think that I was definitely a little bit later to the party as far as cutting back on the curriculum. Um, but I know this past year, that was one thing I'm taking from the read as well, just being able to say it's not so important that they, that I as a teacher make sure that they cover this, but that they know how to respond to mm -hmm. different um, information, whether it's different data and put it in a graph or how to do that um, and just allowing them to have time to be able to practice those science skills because I always share with them that yes this course is about AP bio and you will take the AP bio exam at the end of the course um, although in my school they're not required to do that um, mm -hmm. but my hope is that if you do go on in biology or in science that I've really well are, you've become very well prepared for that. Not necessarily that I've prepared you, but I've given you the opportunity to be able to take away some skills and certainly some critical thinking skills, so lab skills and critical thinking skills to do that. Um, yeah. And my other part of my philosophy is that we have some fun along the way too. So Because if it's not fun for them, it's not fun for me and vice versa. Yeah, I... I think I focus more on making sure it's fun for me. Um, <laughs> well, that comes because, first. Yeah. Well, I think that I, I, I know what's fun for me and I know it's exciting for me and I tend to be, you know, you've 
been around me. I'm I'm an excitable guy, so uh, like I get excited about something and I get like enthusiastic about it, and that translates. Like it's you know going back to right. what we said earlier, mm-hmm. it's authentic. Like right, exactly. The, the, kids, the kids don't think I'm faking it. Right. <laughs> they know I always, that I'm excited about yeah. things. I always love it when you know you get your first email from a kid like late at night, and I had one about this kid was eating cereal. And I think it was Cheerios. And she's like, I just had to email you and tell you that the cereal's acting like water molecules and hydrogen bonding. And I could only share that with you because I know you would think that was so cool. <laughs> or you get, you know, a photograph of a kid who snaps a picture, but they told me that they were not driving of a license plate that says, you know, DNA to RNA. Like, isn't that so cool? <laughs> so, that is a cool, yeah. <laughs> a cool license plate. Oh, yeah. I like to tell them. Like you've become the bio nerd when you get those bio jokes or you start telling those bio jokes too. Yeah. That was lots. Of I always love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. So the, the other thing that we spent, uh, you know, we've recently talked about it, um, was the, the Amgen biotech experience that we were both the, uh, veteran teachers, returning teachers that were, were back in there. Um, and, I, I feel like you are one of the people who does you. You certainly have been doing it much longer than I have. Uh, you've been involved with ABE for for many many years, um, uh, and so I'm kind of curious how you got involved with Amgen Biotech Experience, and also what does it look like in your classroom? And we can flush out what some of these labs look like, and I'll share what I do. But I'm curious both how you got involved and what does it look like in East Long Meadow. Okay, I think from attending the life science outreach lecture series at Harvard that they have in the fall. Um, And I think after my second year attending that, Tara Bennett Bristow, who was the coordinator Mm -hmm. of that at the time, um, she, I'm not exactly sure how she got involved with it, but she said, hey, I have this idea. This is what I, and she was presenting it to the like 70 teachers that were there at the time. Um, I have this idea that I'd like to, have, be a site for this biotechnology and I my ears sort of pick up for the biotechnology um who would be interested in doing that so I think I gave her my email along with a bunch of other people and we started doing some training and from this program as people don't know it's a way to be able to get biotechnology laboratory investigations into the classroom mm-hmm. and from that, I knew that I wouldn't be able to implement all of the six labs that they do, but I wanted to do something. And given that we have a very limited budget, that this was mm. a great way to be able to do that. I mean, I've written some grants to be able to get some things, but it wasn't enough. And this has just really allowed me to to be able to do this every year. And I always have kids that are just like, this was the best part of the class, being able to do this. So it's, again, I don't know if your listeners are really familiar with the program, but it's set up based on looking at how to manufacture insulin. So there's Mm -hmm. a storyline that goes along with it. um, And it starts off where you're learning skills, learning how to pipette, um, learning about gel electrophoresis and how that works. And I definitely do those labs. Mm -hmm. And then it goes through the process of being able to make the plasmid, um, and then checking to see if you've actually used the restriction enzymes correctly to be able to incorporate the gene of interest into your plasmid, um, which I don't do those labs, but I do the transformation lab. And then you can also purify the product. 
So for me, what it looks like in my classroom is that they're learning how to use the pipettes. And that's always the point where the students are like, oh, I feel like a real scientist now. <laughs> and um, and then we, we do the gel electrophoresis. And then so they're comfortable with that. We did the transformation lab. And then as an extension, they've also developed the I do the PTC PCR lab. Mm-hmm. But I haven't done it where we've sent out the samples. I used to at one point do the mitochondrial DNA mm-hmm. and send out the samples for that. But I started to run into some issues of some parents not wanting student samples to be out there. So I'm like, oh, we'll just do the PTC PCR instead. Well, it's interesting that we actually had that conversation come up about people not wanting sequences going out, even if they're for these little fragments. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, I think it's probably a little different with the mitochondria versus the PTC because the PTC is such a small mm-hmm. fragment small of DNA. But um, yeah, we were talking about that. I was talking to a couple of the teachers uh, because I do I do two of the labs that you talked about. I do the lab where we do transformation component. So I haven't gotten the whole storyline component. And I've been thinking about whether or not I want to add that storyline in about the insulin into our biotech discussions because I do that with my um, freshmen. So I okay. do those with my freshmen, sophomores, honors. And basically I just drop this in as transformation lab in the space where we have it. And I actually teach it very much in a gene regulation standpoint mm-hmm. um, because there's like, you know, the Arabinos promoter that's on the front end. And, and, and I think it's a cool lab to say, yes, you can have genes turned on or turned off and you have to have something present to turn that gene on. Um, and then we also obviously go DNA to RNA to protein to talk about the central dogma in that. But we do it there. And I've thought about whether or not I wanted to add in the, the whole insulin storyline, but haven't quite done that with that group. And that's a decision. I haven't gotten to the point where I have to make that yet, but um, <laughs> I probably will make that decision soon about whether I decide to try that out this upcoming year. But the PTC tasting lab this year, I was one of the pilot schools that tried going out to sequence where we did PTC tasting and then we did PCR amplification of the student's DNA and then we did uh, the restriction digest and then we sent out for sequencing and we were able to get the sequences back. So uh, we had, and we had more than, it was like 75% of students got um, readable sequences out of it. So it was really good. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It was the most successful. See, and I've done a couple of other sequence sequencing attempts, and at three dollars a sequence for you know eighty students, it was not also it was also not very price prohibitive to do. Right. So, and is that something really... that your school can provide for, or do you just ask the kids? It will be something. So this year we ended up doing it. I didn't have it budgeted, didn't have it in there, and I just sort of we did it on the. <laughs> students chipped in uh, to do it, um, but it is something I am going to try to incorporate into our budget moving forward uh, because the opportunity to do it sort of came out like in the fall later right. after that conversation, mm-hmm. and I didn't want somebody to say no, <laughs> so I just sort of said, oh, we'll do it this way, and uh, and we and we got it that way in, but I'm hoping to yeah have that as part of our budget going forward because, again, we're going to be able to do it for you know, under $400, even when we have giant classes, we'll be able to do it. Oh, that's great. So I I definitely would be interested in having my students do that. And that's, that's good to hear that you had such a high rate of readable sequences too. Cause I know when I did the, the mtDNA, that wasn't always the case, but at least they got something back that they could, you know, look at and analyze. 
And I think somebody else who did it, what they did is they they randomized them so that they took oh, the okay. kids mm-hmm. they took the kids students and they looked at it as a population thing so that they would basically say that each kid didn't find out their own but they had sort of this population data of our population has this x number of samples mm-hmm. and sample 1 in this population you don't know who it is in this population but sample 1 is this and sample 2 is this and sample 3 is this so how many and then tied it back to Hardy Weinberg from the sequencing which was kind of a cool way of doing it because they wanted to tie back to what the allele frequencies were and um, tie back to sort of Hardy-Weinberg formula. Mm-hmm. But they had concerns. I think somebody in their district had concerns about the student DNA data and safety um, right. and having that information out there, which, you know, it's a, I think it's a good conversation to have. And I can I can respect the fact that it's something where we need to pause and have a conversation about that. And students certainly should have the autonomy to say, no, I don't want my sample out there. And their families certainly should have that opportunity. But I thought this was a nice sort of workaround of that idea. Um, uh, we've amplified this little segment. That's all we're sending out. You know, that, that worked out pretty well. I so. think that's a great way around that possible, you know, prohibition of being not being able to do that or in or not being able to have the whole class be able to sequence. Yeah. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are states that have laws that <laughs> don't let you sequence students' data. Um, I wouldn't be shocked if that there was a law like that. Because I know there are states where you can't do PTC paper. Right. There are states where you can't do, you know, all sorts of different things with that because, you know, there's prohibitions against them. And, mm-hmm. you know, um, you have to, just like in Massachusetts, you can't really do anything with the vertebrates at all almost right <laughs> at all. like you you can have a fish tank you can have a class mouse or a guinea pig but you can't you know do anything to them at all um and there are obviously safe ways of processing and going through and having animal welfare in there but the prohibition prevents you from even exploring those avenues so um I'm, o- I'm always I'm always realizing that as I do some of my model organisms or set up lab visits and stuff like that. Um, I actually had a group that wanted to go to a lab and they were like, oh, yeah, and we'll have the students come down to this facility. And I was like, no, they are high school students in a public school. They cannot go into <laughs> your your mouse, your mouse facility to go do anything. They, that is against the law in the Commonwealth. So, <laughs> so yeah. But oh, so you do you definitely do you do all of these labs in your um, AP classes? I do. I do. Um, it's really sort of dependent on what kind of freshman class I have. Um, mm-hmm. I know I probably should not have that attitude, but because I am borrowing equipment, I want to have the students that are going to respect that too. And that, mm-hmm. and there is a certain population that may not. Um, but I try to do at least the, the gel electrophoresis and learning how to pipette with the freshmen. Mm-hmm. So it's just, you know, the first lab with them. But and again, because I'm not the only biology teacher, they're not all doing it. And I've actually tried to get some of my other biology teachers to come on board and also participate. And I always, unfortunately, sort of get that, well, we don't have time to do that. We have the MCAS. And I'm like, oh, please, don't be telling me that. <laughs> because this is what they'll, I mean, this is what gets them excited about science. And, and again, I really feel like that should be one of our goals. Because you get them yeah. hooked and then... And then you got them, you know, if you get them hooked then they're, you know, they'll be interested in that or they'll bring other things in from their daily life. 
It's, all, it's all also a little laughable, but considering our old MCAS, because I would prep our kids and I would prep our alternative program kids in six weeks um, right. To, right. to pass the thing. Mm-hmm. And these are not these are not our like high flying honors kids. Right. The bar is not high. Like that. <laughs> no, um, I am. I'm curious about the new MCAS, as, as you sort of alluded to. But I also think that the science practices and some of the experimental design stuff like the like transformation in particular, like the idea of and it's complicated and it's hard for students to understand, well, why did I use a whole bunch of plates? Like, why do I have this one plate where I put in no antibiotic and no arabinose? And why do I have this one plate where I put in antibiotic, but no arabinose? And I have this other plate and I put in both antibiotic and arabinose. Why do I have these three different plates? That is all based off of lab design and being able to authenticate your product and authenticate the experimental and validate your experimental design. Um, And that is a science practice that students need to be able to, I mean, they don't need to be able to do that one, but it allows you to utilize scientific practices in a cool, exciting way. Right. And I think thinking back to the, the AP biotest this past year, um, and one of the questions I was grading where they just had to identify the part of the experiment as the control, they will mm-hmm. be expected to identify whether it's a positive control or a negative control next year. So that is a change. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that's important. And again, it's allowing them to see what you're doing with those three different plates of why do you set that up like that? What's the point of, of even the first plate? When you know they're going to grow, it's like, well, will they? <laughs> Yeah. Or did you and kill having, them in the heat shock? Yeah. And having seen lots of examples of people running, you know, transformations, um, I can remember one year where I had contamination in our transformation where we didn't get a very pure E. coli culture sent from the vendor who sent it to us. And I distinctly had a couple of different, like, you know, patches of stuff growing on huh. my first plate. And then I had stuff growing on the other plates and they weren't glowing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like, well, I could, because I had those other plates, I could ask questions and I could do that. You know, science doesn't come from, oh, I did that. It came out exactly the way I expected. It comes from, huh, why'd that happen? Um, <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, so, so, uh, um, so this sort of naturally flows into a little bit the program we were involved in last summer that um, you are not going to do this summer, but uh, <laughs> I'm sure you, you I know you piloted it, uh, which is the Lab Exchange Program, which is, I guess, through Harvard Life Science Outreach and the Amgen, Amgen Foundation. I don't know how to describe it, except for it's its own sort of entity that's being heavily funded through Amgen. Right. Um, and I also know that you piloted it, and rumor has it it's going to come out this September. Um, Right. Part of of that platform will be available um, this fall. And Mm -hmm. I think one of the things you'll be working on is coming up with some storylines to go with it. So what Mm -hmm. we did, um, and I wasn't really sure what it was going to look like in the classroom, but since Mm -hmm. we had done the labs, I and my students were definitely up for the challenge, um, we decided to do it. And they had a storyline set up along you know, basically those, the six labs, but it only went through like learning how to pipette, but they had the beginning part about a boy learning to live with diabetes and what that meant Mm -hmm. to him and his family. And then it talked about how, well, how can we 
clone this gene to be able to make insulin. So that was sort of the hook. And then pretty cool graphics as far as learning how to, well, first of all, what the, how the micropipette works and how to read it. Um, and that was a whole screen that they worked on. And mm -hmm. then from there, then they actually did the electrophoresis from there. Yeah, the um, vir virtual electrophoresis. Right. So the, the feedback I got from my students is that they really, they liked the whole thing. They really thought that it would be great to do the micropipetting part before I introduce it. So they see that, like they could do it at home for homework and then come in and ha be a little bit more familiar. Um, I don't know if that's a reflection on me not teaching them very well how to use <laughs> micropipettes or not, but I didn't take it that way. They just said it would just make more sense. They would be able to have a little more practice before they really got to practice. And, um, you know, just being more maybe computer savvy or game savvy, they had some critiques of it, but nothing big as far as the virtual reality lab aspect. Mm. Um, I thought one thing that I thought was funny is, you know, they kept saying, you know, I didn't close the tip box. I'm like, it sounded just like you. Cause I'm always saying, close the tip box, close the tip box. Um, and then a couple of things that took them a little bit longer, maybe to figure out how to do. And certainly I think for me, it took me longer to figure out how do I connect the, the cables to the electrophoresis box. And, and they were like, Oh, you just do this, this, and this. And they were able to do it much more quickly than I was. Um, but overall, they had they had very positive things to say about it. And they they also liked the idea that it wouldn't necessarily just be for high school students, that the idea is to be able to also have it be an undergrad mm -hmm. platform too. And I mentioned a little bit to them about how to allow undergrads to also maybe get a mentor in the field as well. And I, I know that one thing that I also struggle with is just I have students that are very interested in biology, but they're like, well, what do I do with a bio major too? So <laughs> this would give them one avenue that they would be able to, to be able to pursue and maybe connect with some people too. Cause I don't yeah, know I mean, in your school, if you have a really active career center, but I feel like a lot of that falls on the individual teacher. And I know that's something I would love to be able to do a better job at saying, this is what you can do with a career in biology. Because I know for me, I'm not always, you know, on the cutting edge of things <laughs> to be able to really point them in a specific direction. And, th and that yeah. comes from a freshman student that I had this year who's like, I loved your class, but what do I do with a biology degree if I want to go ahead and study that? I'm like, James, that's a great question. I'll get back to you. Well, and you're not, I mean, for me, my kids are on the commuter rail. They can get into Cambridge. Mm -hmm. Like the, the proximity to a biotech hub is much closer. Um, and, you know, spring, not to say that Springfield doesn't have any biotech, but it's a, a smaller, you know, there's not as many biotech companies right. in, say, Springfield area. Or, um, you know, there's definitely stuff in Worcester, um, in the Worcester area, but that's not like around the corner from you. That's got to be... Mm -hmm. For them to go to UMass, yeah. it's forty-five minutes to an hour. Yeah, so you're like you're probably what forty-five minutes to an hour from UMass, forty-five minutes to an hour to Hartford, forty-five minutes right. to Worcester, like right, an hour to Worcester. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So you like if you go if the kids are able to travel an hour, but high school kids can't travel an hour very easily, especially if they have to travel on their own because they're not on 
a public transportation right. system that can bring them to any of those very easily. Um, so you're right. This this platform does allow them to do that. It's it as you said, it's a virtual example. It's a virtual setup for all of the labs that are involved in Lab Exchange. Um, or in the Amgen Biotech. The other thing is that the Amgen Biotech is only set up in states where, like, if you are in a location like Massachusetts or in Southern California where there is an Amgen facility, they will provide you the resources, they will loan you the equipment and all that. But if you teach in a state where there's no Amgen, which most states don't have an Amgen, you can't get these reagents for free and this equipment for free and that sort of stuff. So let's say you're teaching in a place where you don't have the ability to get these resources. I think it would be exciting that you could have students work their way through this storyline. And maybe you run a transformation that's not the RFP one that we do, but maybe you still could use this storyline and then do like a GFP transformation at the end. Um, and kids could learn all that stuff. Right. And I think so. that there's going to be the potential to have the teachers make a different storyline. And mm -hmm. I think that's what you're going to be working on in the next couple yeah. of weeks. Yeah. And there's a couple of other, as we mentioned, um, and I was talking to um, to some of the people from, from both the ABE and Lab Exchange that, you know, some of the other labs don't currently have stories built into them. Um, and I certainly would like to, um, because I don't do all of the labs but I could see how some of those labs could pull out and tie to a different story about some other topic. Um, and so I'm excited to hear what, hear what other teachers have. And uh, the other thing that we haven't touched upon is that like the energy in the room that we get from being in a room with the, you know, 15 to 20 other teachers who come in to work on the lab exchange stuff. These are like really impressive teachers who are super creative and there's a great energy and creativity to figuring things out and modeling things and asking questions and that it's just like a it's a fun week to work on curriculum stuff so. it is definitely and I, and that whole modeling aspect was that was great yeah i didn't really yeah, like being filmed that much i don't know how you felt about that but uh i was i was actually just saying that to somebody the other day i was talking about the when we were walking over to amgen that in part because of this podcast like i have become super comfortable recording myself uh, and started doing this and then i flipped my classroom and i put my face right on my videos for my kids um and because i'm i i've learned to edit the audio mm -hmm. and then i learned to edit the video like for me that's not a big deal like i'm it's just one of those things like i am kind of a goofy 40 something year old you know that I, my face is already all over the internet. Um, kids have already edited down. Um, there is a video of me introducing myself over and over and over and over again. Just me saying, hey, everybody, it's Mr. Matthew. Like some kid clipped the first like few seconds of all my videos into a long stream that's like me doing that for like 75 seconds and it has more views than any of my actual curriculum videos because kids were sharing it around and laughing and laughing and laughing and I'm like okay that's gonna happen that's one of those right. things so I've gotten over the self-consciousness of having my videos out there and I think so. that happens with more practice it's just yeah I guess I need that practice so yeah. I have well, started doing my own videos for first for class and sometimes putting my picture there but mostly not but um i can go, I can go dig out the yeah i'll go <laughs> dig out the store the the thing that says that you should have your face your face on there right, that right. students engage more with it 
That, that's true, but I also like the student that said, yeah, I like it when you do that because then I can put you at two times speed and I can get it done a lot faster. <laughs> it's like, oh, thanks. <laughs> it's like, what do I sound like at that point? I actually had a kid who said I came into the room to say something to, to one of the other teachers and I was saying it very excitedly and they said that I sounded like me at 2x speed um, and I knew exactly what she meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, yeah, I know they do that. So that's, that's a thing. That's a, yeah, it's all right. I listen to my, most of my podcasts at 2x speed anyway, so I don't take it personally. <laughs> So yeah, it's uh, it's it's going to be exciting to sort of see what it looks like. Um, I think it's going to probably take and I. The good news is there's really good people. There's good funding behind it. Uh, it's going to probably take a year or two to figure out how the what's missing and what's good and what does it look like in the classroom. So um, I'm sort of excited to see what happens in the next few years with Lab Exchange, um, and hopefully it gets some traction and people try it out. Definitely, I think so. definitely recommend them to, to definitely see what's going on with that just as you can bring in your own resources too you can't publicly share them but i think it'll be a good place to house some of your different videos that you want to use and just use things that are provided through the lab exchange as well yeah so it's it's gonna be cool and i do think they have uh all kinds of different resources from all sorts of different stuff. Like they, we didn't recreate the wheel. They definitely pulled stuff from, you know, uh, edX and they pulled stuff from existing platforms that are already out there. Um, that I think a lot of teachers already use, um, that are easily, you can easily drop into a a storyline for students, um, to use things. So, uh, I'll put the link to lab exchange in there with the introductory video that people can see and then in september people will be able to check out and see what the platform looks like all right well uh so we've talked a lot about what you've how you got in the classroom and what you've been working on what are you looking forward to in your classroom in the upcoming years um well just this coming fall we've been notified that we're going to be a one-to-one school so i'm I'm, yeah i'm excited and i'm a little nervous about mm-hmm. it too, but I also have signed up to do some training right before school starts. Uh, so hopefully that will be good. Um, I've heard the good, the bad, and the ugly about having mm-hmm. the Chromebooks in class, but I don't think it's going to really change how I teach, but it'll just be another tool in the toolbox, so to speak. And I'm hoping, I'm not really sure, but I'm hoping like the Vernier probes that I have will be able to connect up to them and they'll be able to sort of take away their data from that more easily. I don't know if you know anything about that, but... Um, yeah, there is a an interface that Vernier plugs into that then plugs into Chromebooks. I don't know if the probes go directly into the Chromebooks, not, yeah. but there is, there's an interface that mm-hmm. allows you to do that. And there's also something that is called SciJournal, okay. S-C-I Journal, uh, which is a Google product. And it's it's this it's a science journal app that um, you can and your your district if your district and I believe your district is a Google Classroom mm-hmm. yeah, side yeah. they I think they have to turn it on um, in their behind the scenes uh, however they decide what apps you can and can't have um, <laughs> it's not a default one okay and I had to have them turn it on for my district but what that does is it interfaces directly into Drive. And so what you can do is if you go in and you do an experiment, you can use the phones as a probe for collecting certain types of data. Right. Okay. 
So for example, I just turned it on and I'm talking. Um, so I have sound intensity right now. And so it's measuring the amount of decibels that I am recording at the moment. But you can also walk and have your linear motion recorded. You can have the light intensity. You can have um, other things that go on as you move around. But there is supposed to be a way to connect to external probes as well. So there are other devices that you can tie in. And I believe that vernier probes are one of the things that you can tie in. So that not only would the students be able to save their stuff right into, like, you know, into like just a random file they can tie it into their google drive right and you could have like a shared you could have a shared document where everybody's collecting their data into a shared folder or something like that and so that'd that be they great can get collections of data so i am just learned about this at the end of last school year and started to play around with it so but i i i'm excited about as people start playing around with more like large-scale data collection from students using apps and things like that that will help connect those right into the existing platforms that we already use, like Drive, um, and possibly get some more out of it. Mm -hmm. So that's definitely one thing that I'm looking forward to and learning more about, because sometimes I mm -hmm. feel like a fossil when it comes to those things. But I really do try to keep myself up to date with that. Um, and the other thing is we have a brand new bio teacher that's coming in this year, and I'm really excited to work with him. He's actually, I didn't have him as a student, but he's a graduate of East Longmeadow. Um, and I, that's just always excited or exciting to have him come in and, and just maybe mentor this new teacher, you know, certainly with yeah. the, the hope that, you know, one day he could have a section of AP bio instead of me just having all the AP bio, <laughs> which would be great. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I have a similar ish experience experience that we have two teachers joining our honors biology team which has been a very small group, but I'm like super excited to get teachers who've never taught our honors bio curriculum to come in and infuse energy into that. Mm -hmm. um, sort of like what you're talking about, having a new teacher come in to work with you on stuff and, and have another, you know, a new set of eyes and a new perspective. And um, they get to, they help you find your blind spots, but they also will infuse some energy into the curriculum they'll get excited about things that maybe you're not quite as excited about and that, right. that's great for, that's and great i think for that enthusiasm is contagious and i'm certainly hoping that will happen i think we have some good changes happening in our science department which will be good oh that's exciting all right well when you are not teaching and you said you are decidedly doing a little bit more downtime this summer not that you do downtime 100% of the time, as you've already alluded to, you spent some time at Harvard, right. <laughs> and you're going to be doing some training on some one-to-one uh, -one resources later this summer. So, uh, you know, that's... when you do have some downtime, what do you look forward to? Well, I think, number one, I'm a huge sports fan. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely number one Red Sox fan. So that's always on in the background if, if the game is on. Um, mm -hmm. The kids know about that. Pretty excited. Our course is going to be singing the national anthem in oh. September. So the choral teacher knew that I would be their first chaperone to go with that. <laughs> so I do that. I used to do some coaching um, with field hockey and lacrosse. I don't do that anymore, but I still keep active as far as I run the clock and do the announcements for the soccer games and lacrosse games in the spring. So I'm um, field hockey games since I used to coach field hockey and lacrosse. Um, hmm. So I do miss that. I think that's a great way to get to notice the students outside of the classroom. 
Um, but that's also very school related, I think too. But beyond that, I mean, I, I do like to cook and experiment. I always say that a recipe is just there to be interpreted how, or interpreted how you feel. Um, and mostly I love baking. So I do a lot of cooking and things like that. Um, and then in the summer, like if it's not too, too hot out, I love to be outside and kayaking. Um, I think growing up on Martha's Vineyard, I definitely love the beach and try to get back there when I can. So I've also just started getting a little bit into photography and got a new camera. So I've been playing around with that too. Nice. You can tie that into being outdoors as well. Exactly. Yeah. I, my wife in particular has always been a good photographer, but like now I have been setting up bird feeders and stuff like that. And she's been taking amazing pictures of birds and wildlife in our, in our yard the last couple of years. So a lot of, a lot of good stuff in New England, particularly during the summer to take pictures of. Exactly. All right. Well, we're almost to picks of the episode, but before we get to picks of the episode, do you have any questions for me? Well, Erin, I know I've seen, and I just saw on your computer the other day that um, you had the BioBytes, and I know that you've been mm -hmm. involved with the BioBuilders, and, I, and mm -hmm. you always seem to be involved with something I have never heard of, and I'm just wondering if you could talk a little <laughs> bit about like the BioBytes and, and what that what what's involved with that. Yeah, so bi I think it's actually BioBits. Oh, BioBits, sorry. Yeah, BioBits. No, uh, BioBits. So um, we I've talked a little bit about mini PCR in the past, um, but uh, mini PCR, for those people who don't know, um, is a company that's out of Cambridge that started by making little thermocyclers, little eight well thermocyclers. And I think most people who know mini PCR, that's what they know. Um, these little cool, less than a thousand dollar thermocyclers that that you can get um, access to. Um, so yeah, last winter, it was, it was actually a really one of those, those very funny things that happens around here. Um, you know, uh, Don Pinkerton, who you, you probably know as well mm -hmm. from the, the Amgen stuff, he jokingly says that there's only like 30 biology teachers in Massachusetts, uh, because whenever you go to something, it's the same group of 30 of us who are at everything. Uh, but it was, it was either January or February. And I went into Cambridge, uh, into MIT into a room and I just responded to an email out from mini PCR saying, do you want to come and take a look at this new curriculum thing that we're looking at building and play around with it and see what it's like. And you know, mini PCR guys are great and they always have really cool resources. So I was like, sure, I'll go in. It was an afternoon that I had free. So I went in and the idea of BioBits is it's a cell-free gene expression program. And so what that means is that you can take a plasmid and drop it into this dehydrated um, cell-free system that will convert the DNA into a protein over a short period of time and get that protein expression. Wow. So specifically what this means is if you have the gene for GFP or RFP, you could drop it into this system that you've just rehydrated. And even though there are no cells in there, within a short window of time, they will start to express this protein. So there's no cells. You don't have to have any, you don't have to freeze anything because it's all freeze dried. And you can get the equivalent output of transformation within a very short window of time, like minutes. 
Wow. Um, that, that's the idea behind it. Uh-huh. So, uh, yeah, so I go to this thing, and as I walk in, I walk in the door. The first person I see sitting on the bench in front of me is Mike Murray, who is a fellow AP reader, uh, who I hung out with at the read all last year and all this year as well. And um, then we walk in the room, and then five minutes later, who walks in but Alia and uh, you know, like a whole group mm-hmm. of the, the the people that we know from Amgen Biotech. Right. So literally it was like this random thing I responded to to go in and all of these people I know from all the workshops all walked in together um, <laughs> to sit down and do this thing. The reason I knew a little bit about this kind of technology is that, as you mentioned, I know BioBuilder and I've been working with Natalie from BioBuilder for, gosh, it's getting close to a decade now. I think it's about eight or nine years that I've been working with her. Um, she actually had me try out with some of my students this program called um, TXTL, which is a cell-free expression system that they're starting to work with at the industry level to try to get proteins expressed in small amounts for like really quick assays uh-huh. of of DNA. So um, BioBits is sort of a high school friendly version of a cell-free gene expression system. Um, and so when I just opened up the website and it says coming soon, <laughs> so they don't quite have the kit ready, but I'll put a link into my show notes um, so people can read their little blurb about it. The other cool thing that it uses is, I don't know if you know, the mini PCR also has this little tiny called P51 glow system. It's like a little cardboard box that has a UV light behind it that if you drop a, a PCR tube in, that has something that fluoresces and you turn the thing on, it will fluoresce in there. So you can use that to express RFP cells or GFP cells really easy and you don't need a big light box, but you can also like do serial dilutions or other things like that. And this BioBit system works really nicely with the P51 um, glow lab system that they have. So um, it's, it's a cool little connection. Definitely. No, I don't know anything about that. So thank you. Well, I'll put those links in there um, for those those things. And uh, then what Alia, the reason Alia was bringing it up is because I started asking all these kind of questions about, well, if you're getting protein expression, for me, the reason I would want to teach protein expression is that I want my students to then play with the parameters that lead to variation in protein expression, which includes the environment of that protein. Mm-hmm. So I started asking them questions about, well, what if you were to do this and you do this as the baseline, and then you have a variety of follow-up labs where students could tweak different things such as salt concentration or pH or other things and see, do you get different expression? <laughs> I think it was Zeke from, uh, from them smiled and he's like, I don't know. I don't know what would happen, but you're probably right. And likely, you know, they're using a pretty robust uh, GFP expression system. So I think what he was saying is that it's one that it it binds. And he's right. Like, it was still expressing the GFP like three or four days later um, oh, in wow. the tube after mm-hmm. I brought it home. And at room temperature. Like, I didn't put it in the fridge or anything. It was expressing many days later. It was kind of amazing. He was saying that he thinks that this is a pretty, like, really stable version of GFP they're doing, but that's a great example of an inquiry-level lab that you could try to work out for your kids Mm -hmm. that they could play around. And so this doesn't have to be something that's, like, super on-the-top AP level. You could talk about gene expression. You talk about gene expression in your first-year bio students. What does gene expression do? They make proteins. Well, earlier in the year, we did proteins, and we did enzymes, and we put the enzymes in different pHs and we put them in different salts and we saw, you know, something modify with them. What happens if we do the same thing to this? What happens to these systems? Um, and so you could reinforce some of those underlying principles that you rolled out earlier in this really kind of high tech system that your kids don't need to know how high tech it is. They just need to 
understand that this is central dogma. Right. I think that's so. great. And just any time you can reinforce that, that's super yeah. important. Yeah. And so that's how I was, I, I, I was excited about it. So I'm looking forward to them rolling that out this particular year. And um, again, another one of those, you know, Cambridge based company, you know, rolling ideas out. They, mm -hmm. it's, it's, we're very fortunate to be in Massachusetts and be able to get exposed to ideas like that. So, so yeah. And you were asking me how I get involved in so many things as I have a very low threshold for saying, yes, I'll go check something out. Um, <laughs> which means I'm on, which means I'm on everybody's email list. And so when people say, Hey, well, you, are you interested in taking a look at this for a curriculum idea? I'm almost always, you know, I always say yes. I don't always incorporate them into my curriculum, but I, I say yes very readily to checking things out. Um, and as a result, I, I make a lot of connections with things. And even if it's just for my own mental like processing of how things could be connected, um, I think that there's a value in going and being exposed to things so you're just aware of what's out there. Oh, absolutely. Um, and I, I think for myself, just going to the life science outreach and just being exposed to the current research. And I think they do a great job with that. Um, and then from that, I was able to get involved with the ABE and also with mm -hmm. Lab Exchange. So I, I totally agree. And I'm very, yeah. I feel really blessed to be able to be part of that community. Like you said, it, it seems like it's the same people over and over, but it's the same people that really care about what they're doing as their career and bringing, you know, the best science to their students that they can. Yeah, and as I was mentioning, the thing when this episode comes out, I will have just been at UConn, and the reason I was there was because one of the members of the ABE community last summer, and I was talk, we were talking about something, and he had just gone to a workshop, and it tied into microbiology and molecular biology, with which are two of my loves, and he is like, I need to introduce you to, you know, to the people who run this and see if they have opportunities, and so he sent an email and introduced me digitally to the people who run this Tiny Earth Initiative, and. <laughs> like I got invited to uh -huh. go to Yukon for a week of like intensive BSL two training and um, I'll see if this is something that turns into curriculum for me. So, um, you know, even if it's not something that does it's it's a level of being in a college level research lab for a week in the summer, which is going to energize me, excite me and bring back to my students like some real authentic what the research is being done on like looking for antibiotics today that sort of stuff so all right well we have gotten two picks of the episode and i asked if you had come across anything interesting mary joe and you came up with a book so mary joe what's your pick of the episode so my pick is unsheltered so it's a fictional book by barbara kingsolver um mm -hmm. and what i really liked about it is well, Barbara Kingsolver, for those of your listeners who are familiar with her, is a biologist by training, and her first book talks about her as a biology teacher. But in this particular book, it goes back and forth to a point where this woman had actual correspondences, fictional correspondences, with Darwin. So it's mm. it kind of goes back and forth from the present day to the 1800s. So I highly recommend it. It's a nice, easy read, good beach book, but also has some good science in it too. Oh, yeah. I think I, I think I remember her earlier book, uh, Flight Behavior. Right, and then uh, Animal Dreams is like one of her first books too. So. Okay. 
Yeah, I remember hearing about her the 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 flight behavior book. I'll have to check this out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, fictional <laughs> exchanges, sort of. So it's definitely got a uh, historical fiction component right. to it. Right. Mm -hmm. Neat. And it's a little little inherit the wind. You know, before inherit the wind, as far as the the scopes monkey trial. So this teacher ends up getting fired because he's trying to teach natural selection. Yeah, you say light beach read. It's it's just four hundred and eighty pages. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> okay, just look that up. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but it is a it is a great. You know, I'll definitely have to have that in my list for uh, for later this summer as but I. But if it's in your I, Kindle I, or on your Nook, it's not that many, right? Or it's more yeah. <laughs> if you have to magnify it like I do. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I love, I love a little fiction that that brings in some science. I, I tend to do quite a bit of that myself. Uh, so I went a totally different nerd direction, and I have three separate links uh, for you. One is the Rosalind Project, one is Code Academy, and the other is BioPython Tutorial. Um, and so, as you mentioned earlier, we had gone to Amgen. Uh, the the Amgen facility, and I don't know when you talk to people how much coding came up for people who know how to program and how useful they are in the field mm -hmm. of industry. Um, we actually talked to two separate people, one during our tour and then one in our little speed dating where we got to meet people who talked about the importance and ability to learn how to code mm -hmm. at at the industry level. And this is something I hear a lot from people in industry is students need to be exposed to code and students need to be exposed to code and that sort of thing. So these are three different resources that um, actually would give you as a biology teacher an understanding of code at a very simple level. So um, the Code Academy Learn How to Code is literally just that. It is a six hour uh, self-paced free course that gives you the basic tenets of coding. like. What is a variable, and what are what are different types of data, um, and talks about the difference between a boolean data and numerical data and string data and that sort of stuff. So if you don't know anything about coding at all, the Code Academy Learn How to Code will give you the basic verbiage and language about what code is, and it is in a language agnostic type way. Like you don't need to know Python or R or you know, Java or JavaScript or any of that stuff. It's just like the basic tenets of coding that exist so that you could just sort of expose yourself to that idea. Uh, the BioPython tutorial, the reason I put that link in is it actually goes through, it's called the Bio Tutorial um, uh, and Cookbook, is it actually gives you in the, if you scroll down to like what BioPython is and that sort of stuff, it actually gives you some reasons as to like why, what can I find if I wanted to do this. And what it does is having the ability to code allows you to parse information, particularly in bioinformatics, if you want to use a language like Python. And so, for example, you can look at blast outputs. You can look at clustral, which help you build trees, you know, phylogenetic trees. You can look at FASTA sequences. You can look at gene banks. You can look at PubMed and Medline. You can look at um, enzyme and prosite files. You can look at um, um, 
all kinds of, you know, Unigene and SwissProt, which is a protein website. So you can look at these different databases if you know a little bit about these types of languages. And they actually then go through and provide some examples of how these interface with different kinds of things. So again, you don't need to know how to code, but the question of, well, you have a kid who comes back to you and says, there's this thing on bioinformatics and coding. What do they mean? What kind of, like you can say, hey, this gives you an, in, some information about that. And then the last thing I put in was what something called the Rosalind Project, which is, uh, I'm not sure if I'm going to incorporate it into my class, but definitely something I'm going to put some students on. What it does is it provides people an opportunity to learn bioinformatics and programming through solving a problem. Oh, cool. And so what it does is an example is, and it goes through a series of problems. So the first problem is counting DNA nucleotides. And the second problem is transcribing DNA into RNA. And so what you do is you go through them in sequence and you solve the problem. So you have to know a little bit of coding. So you have to go through and do some of the coding language and learn a little bit of, you probably have to go through the basic Python course um, through Code Academy, which again is free. Uh, but what it does is it gives you this thing where it says the problem is we're going to give you a string of DNA and a data set. And what we want you to do is we want you to create a count output for the four nucleotides, meaning you should be able to return the number of A's, C's, G's, and T's in your output from the string that we give you of data. So we're gonna give you a big giant DNA code and you're gonna be able to, to copy that, paste it into your code, and get out how many A's, T's, C's, and G's you are. And that's your first programming challenge. And so if you, basically you have to learn how, and then they have solutions. So like if you fail to do it, it's not a big deal. They're like, well, this is how you would go about doing that. So it gives you the opportunity if you wanted to go down the rabbit hole of learning some basic coding so that you could turn those kids on who are your coders. And I'm sure you have a couple. I have a couple every year mm -hmm. who would be kids who would love to code. This shows them the way that they could apply that coding in the context of biology, which is something I don't really know how to do. <laughs> but these are three resources that I have started to play with. Oh, that's um, cool. And I know that yeah. they're just starting a, a girls encoding like club after school. So I pass on these resources. Yeah. And so again, if the girls encoding want to play around with like using coding to solve problems in biology, Mm -hmm. the, using the Rosalind project would give them a set of problems to build their skill set that would allow them to tackle some larger problems, uh, which is kind of cool. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, this is something that's also been turning over my head since the Mass State Science Fair because uh, we had a student who finished, I forget if he was either first or second in the Mass State Science Fair, where he did his entire pro his science fair project was coding. He converted image file data um, into like into an output of modifying those image files through coding um, and they were MRI data sets um, and that was like it was an entirely a computer science based solution to this problem of clarifying images um, so like not my student <laughs> Uh, not a student who took AP biology, but a student who can code like crazy and was using that code to solve something that was fundamentally a medical based problem. Mm -hmm. So this is pretty cool. So this is my, my on ramp to coding for biology teachers. <laughs> and I think that's great too. I mean, that ties back to that sort of question I have of how do we tell our students like what they can do with biology. It's so much more than just learning biology. It's definitely related 
to understanding different computer-based languages as well and what and bioinformatics as you mentioned and how important mm-hmm. that is you just don't learn biology in isolation i mean i think when i was in college yeah you did you you were a yep. biology major and what did that mean you took eight classes and then bam you were a biology teacher <laughs> so yeah, yeah not it's anymore a bit, a bit different mm-hmm. today all right. Well, Mary Jo, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a great conversation. Hopefully you forgot that we were recording, mm-hmm. um, as I promised. <laughs> let, let me give my show credits. Uh, please subscribe to Life of the School on your podcast player of choice. Um, I, I love to see those numbers every week as I see those. Uh, you can also get show notes um, at patreon.com slash lots or at lifeoftheschool.org. If you do subscribe to Patreon, I do release my episodes a few days early for my Patreon so they can hear it in advance. And music on this and every episode is provided by X Magicians and Jake Jenkins. You can follow me on Twitter at Mr. Matthew Tweets or at Life of the School. You can follow Mary Jo on Twitter for her very occasional tweets at MJ Rainier. And I hope everybody's having a great summer and I will talk to all of you soon.